Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 83. Following last week's conversation with the Kepler Space Telescope system engineer Charlie Sobeck, we're continuing on the theme of all things Kepler. This week, we're checking in with the mission's dynamic science duo, Jesse Dotson, who is Kepler's project scientist, and Geert Berenstain, who is director of the Guest Observer Office. They're here to tell us how NASA's first planet-hunting mission has gone on to do so much more for the field of astronomy than, well, merely finding a sky full of exoplanets. We're entering the final months of the spacecraft collecting science data, and it'll be going out on a high note. Jesse and Gear explained there's a lot of exciting research still going on. So let's listen to our discussion with Jesse Dotson and Geert Bernstein. It's awesome having you guys back. So, but like, let's kind of pick up where we left off. I mean, last time that we were together chatting, well, individually with Jesse and with your, um, talk a lot about exoplanets, a lot, a lot about the Kepler mission. A lot of stuff has changed. I know the primary mission is already concluded out. So, what's going on in your guys' world right now? So, you know, we're still operating the spacecraft in the K2 mode. Um, I know people have talked about that before on the podcast, where we look at a different field of view every 80 days. Um, we do that. We only have two working reaction wheels, and we're kind of using the sun to provide the pointing around the third axis. And the cool thing about looking in different areas every 80 days is we get to look at a wide variety of stars. And so we're still finding lots of exoplanets around different types of stars and it's just fascinating so Gert, you have a favorite exoplanet discovery from the last year well you know my actually my favorite thing is that there's like new planets every other day now it's a bit like uh -huh. the weather forecast like in fact there's the nasa exoplanet archive keeps track of them and if you subscribe to their mailing list they'll send you a message every week with this like list of like new planets this week it's like routine so actually as of last night we now have 2648 Oh, planets wow. confirmed from Kepler. And I'm sure that'll change by the time we even like have this published, because <laughs> breaking the fourth week. wall that we've recorded it, so it'll continually like change. That's crazy. Every week, there's like maybe like on a quiet week, it'll be two new planets. On a busy week, it'll be a hundred, which is what happened last week, I think, uh, yeah, Jesse. Very cool. And, and I guess for folks who are, who are listening, who may not have listened to the previous episodes, which I'm sure they'll go back into the archive <laughs> and learn all about everything that you guys are working. But for folks who are not aware, I mean... The Kepler telescope, you know, in the primary mission was all about finding exoplanets. And that primary mission had concluded. But now, it, you know, it, a lot of stuff that Geert's been working on, also you, Jesse, of the, of the K2 mission, there's still a lot that you're finding out about exoplanets. Am I wrong? Absolutely. So in the primary mission, we looked at one field of view and we kind of picked a very kind of nominal part of the sky where the, lots of the stars were, but they were kind of middle aged stars. But now that we're looking at different parts of the sky all the time, we're looking at young stars, old stars, stars and star clusters, and finding planets in all these different areas. And so the star clusters, we get really excited about. Yeah. Because star clusters are like the closest thing that uh, astronomers have to a stellar laboratory. Because all the stars on a star cluster have about the same age, 
and they were formed from basically the same stuff. So they have very similar chemical compositions. So when you look at a star cluster, any differences you see in between the stars and the star cluster, they're not due to age and they're not due to the composition. They're going to be due to size and other variables. And so finding planets and star clusters is so exciting and we're starting to find them. You know, over the past four years of operating Kepler in the K2 mode, we looked at 20 clusters. Oh, wow. And now, like, uh, we're starting to really find the planets in them. So, like, maybe my favorite is the Beehive cluster. Okay. I think, like, the listener, if the listener of the podcast is an amateur astronomer, they will notice because it's this beautiful object. If you look this time of the year, sort of in spring, if you look with binoculars towards the east, like just below Castor and Pollux, two famous stars in the constellation mm -hmm. of Gemini, you see this fuzzy blob. And if you point your binoculars at it, it's this, this beautiful swarm of like thousands of stars that, build, that fills your binocular. So now we know that there's at least six planets there, including an Earth-sized one which we didn't know a year ago. That's just so cool. And the other cool thing about finding planets and star clusters is every star cluster kind of gives us a snapshot of what stars look like at a certain age. Mm -hmm. And so when we start to find planet systems in star clusters, we now know what a planet system looks like at 5 million years or 10 million years. The planet systems in the Kepler field, they were all kind of middle-aged stars, so it's kind of mm. hard to know what age those planet systems are. And understanding how planetary systems form and grow up is just a fascinating area of study that we're just starting. I remember, Garrett, when you were on, you talked about a lot about you know what you actually end up seeing when the data comes back. It almost looks just like a pixel. I remember the analogy of you're putting a lot of light into a bucket yep. and you're measuring the differences of you know the light in one bucket versus what it was beforehand. So what do you guys see? And then, because I'd imagine if a star was a pixel and you're trying to understand the dimness for like transits and stuff. When you're looking at star clusters, is that like a bunch of pixels all clumped together or I don't know, help, help me out. Like how, what are you, you guys know, actually seeing? How do you determine that? It's a lot more difficult because if the star yeah. cluster is very dense, then you have to separate the flux. So people are writing better tools and better software to separate the signals. And we just had a, a workshop for professional astronomers in Boston last month uh, where we got 50 people together to exactly discuss these problems and also discuss the new scientific results they achieved using these new methods. So this keeps like this is an ongoing state of the art research question is how do we get all these signals out of the data? I'm also assuming that it's not just us looking at that data. There's an entire community of scientists that are looking at this data and helping to pick this all apart. Oh, absolutely. There's a huge number of people analyzing the Kepler and the K2 data. I you know, as of last month, I just looked this yeah. figure up. Uh, <laughs> as of last month, there were 50 PhD theses in the U.S. that were written based on Kepler data. So oh, wow. 50 times where a student, a graduate student, spent you know, five, six years of their life you know, working away on the Kepler data to, to extract all the science. There's now 2,500 papers, like peer-reviewed scientific publications based on the Kepler data. You talked about the star clusters and exoplanets. It's not just exoplanets, am I right? Because I, I think at one point we were talking about some other even objects in our own solar system and stuff, there's a whole mix of different, you get a lot of diversity in the K2 program. One of the, because we're looking in different parts of the sky every 80 days, we see a huge number of stuff. For instance, we look at comets and okay. we look at asteroids and we look at dwarf planets. It was a really cool discovery that people did using K2 data where they took a look at a dwarf planet, 2007 OR10. And in the K2 data, they measured its rotation rate, so how quickly this dwarf planet was rotating. And it was rotating so slowly that they were like, 
huh, what's going on there? And they, they thought that one of the explanations for such a slow rotation rate would be if the dwarf planet had a moon. And so they went back and looked in historical Hubble images that people had previously taken oh, really? of this object. Okay. And because they knew to look for a moon, they were able to find it. Oh, wow. And so then that's like the, those cross of like different yeah. data points just painting like a broader picture. It's it such all. a cool story because, you know, the spacecraft was not designed to look at solar system <laughs> objects, right? And then you also have this thread of, you know, you can take data like from the Hubble and not understand what's there until you know what to look for. And mm. that is one of the fascinating things about science data from these missions. You know, we archive the data, we make it public. I'm certain people are going to find things in our data that we don't know to look for yet, well into the future. You know, this is why NASA has multiple telescopes, because often exactly. they're good at like different things. And when you combine them, like the sum is more than the, uh, you know. Because you have the land-based telescopes, you have space telescopes, yep. you have like the SOFIA that's flying around, capture, uh, flying telescopes. And so, yeah. Absolutely. And, and one of the kind of routine things that happen with the Kepler and K2 data is, you know, we talk about we find planets. Well, we do, but we find the signals of things that could be planets. When people talk about, you know, uh, finding another 100 confirmed uh, planets in the K2 data, they start with our signals, but then they combine that with ground-based observations to rule out some of the things that could possibly look like a planet in our data but isn't. And so all of the confirmed Kepler and K2 planets have ground observations to help us make that case. Even in the early days of like exoplanets, I mean, people had seen things that ended up being exoplanets, but they thought it was something else, or surely it's a, a lot of false positives, or people thought it was, but then they didn't want to get too overambitious. And that's part of science. That's part of the cool part about science, absolutely. We get smarter all the time. Yeah, and, like, and then the more data points, the more stuff, and mm-hmm. it's like years from now, people will still be using this. Mm-hmm. We hope so. Well, the science is only getting started, as far as I'm concerned. We just last year was the most productive scientific year for Kepler. Even though the mission was launched in 2009, and now it's 2018, and the number of papers and discoveries is still ramping up. And this is a cool thing from chatting with people. I mean, obviously, there's a cool engineering story about you know the telescope and the reaction wheels and using the sun to balance it out. But I think you tend to lose track of between sending big hunks of metal and science in there. We're not doing this just for fun and just to say that we can put something in orbit or, or have it circle around the sun. Like the whole purpose of this whole thing is to learn the science about it as to, for these discoveries and to be able to take it from what it was the primary mission, but getting all this extra stuff out of that is just huge. Absolutely. And it's a cool story because Kepler, the spacecraft, was designed to do one thing really, really well, and that was find planets around other stars. And we can do that, but because the Kepler spacecraft allows us to basically look at our universe with a different set of eyes than we had before, and that we can measure very, very small changes of brightness, and we can look at a lot of stars at the same time, and we record the brightness every half hour continuously, now for 80 days at a time, and the primary mission for almost the entire four years. And that kind of high-sensitivity, uninterrupted staring Mm -hmm. You learn so much that you can't learn when you just look at something once a night or once a year. 
Yeah. We've been using this capability recently, actually, to look at something entirely different, which is supernova explosions. I was right about to like to transition into that because I was thinking it was like a couple months ago we had a whole conversation and mm-hmm. you're just talking about supernovas and I just felt like my mind was blown. So yes, your mind was go. blown. I was just like, what? Your mind was blown, just like stars blow when nice. they get supernova. Very smooth. <laughs> you know, because uh, th- that's what a supernova is. A supernova is what happens when a star blows itself to smithereens and not just any star we think the most common type of supernova is when this object called a white dwarf mm-hmm. explodes now uh, let me briefly explain what a white dwarf is a white dwarf is basically the core of a star that died so mm-hmm. you know um, the listener might know that the reason a star like our sun is warm and bright is because at its core it's fusing hydrogen into helium through nuclear fusion. And then once it runs out of hydrogen, it will maybe fuse a bit of helium into carbon and oxygen. But then what you end up with at the end of the life of a star is this big ball of uh, carbon and oxygen in the core of the star. And often it's no longer hot enough then to fuse those elements into heavier elements. So usually when a star dies, it's just left with this big ball of carbon and of carbon and oxygen. And so the universe is full of these big balls of carbon and oxygen. They used to be stars billions of years ago, and now they're, they're dead. But sometimes, and this is not common, but sometimes these things have the most violent explosions you will mm-hmm. ever see, like explosions visible across, across the universe. So this is something that happens when a carbon detonation occurs. This is okay. basically a process during which in a few seconds, the entire star heats up to billions of degrees and flies apart. All the particles that make up the star fly apart in this explosion at at 10,000 miles per hour. And this is important for scientists. This is a tool we use to measure distances in the universe. And yet the reason these explosions happen is something that's still a bit of an enigma. Oh, really? So there's a few theories. Mm -hmm. Um, So what people think happens is that the white dwarf must be uh, gaining material from somewhere. Because we think we know from models that once a white dwarf becomes heavier than about 1.4 times the mass of the sun, that's when you get enough temperature through gravity to to have this explosion. But where does this material come from? And there's a few theories. One option is if there's a star nearby, if it's like a binary star system, it might be gobbling, it might be siphoning material onto the star. That's one option. It might also- Eating its neighbor. Eating its neighbor. You know, it's a bit, you know, cannibalism (laughs) happens in the universe. Uh, Or it might be maybe a merger. It might be another star colliding with it. But Mm -hmm. honestly, we don't really know. Now, the beauty is if we use Kepler to look at thousands of galaxies, we know that we will see supernovae right when they go off. Just because we'll be lucky to see a few. You just happen there. to be looking at the right time. Yeah, I mean, you you get on a kind of ish. That's it's a bit fuzzy, but you get about one supernova per galaxy per hundred years. So we're looking like right now we are looking at just over nine thousand galaxies. Yep, and you know if a, if and this is also when that happens, it takes time for that light to even get to us. Am I, am I wrong on that? True. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. as always. <laughs> there's always light travel There's always time. like that. Because yeah, yeah. there's a thing about light and how fast it travels. So even, even when we see one happening, it's like it happened like forever ago. Millions of years ago. Yeah. Right. Before the light even reaches us. Yes. So. But the neat thing is that when it happens, we can actually use the first hours and the first minutes of the explosion to figure to try to figure out what happened. Because if there's like a big star next to it that was, you know, being gobbled up, then when the explosion hits that star, it should give a blip in the light. 
And that's exactly what Kepler is doing right now, which is super exciting because this is like Nobel Prize winning type science. You know, there was a Nobel Prize in 2011. They used these type of supernovae. And what are you guys able to learn from these supernovae, from these measurements that you didn't know before? Or what are you hoping to learn? Or- well, just like Garrett was explaining, uh, for this particular type of supernova, there are different explanations in terms of how it starts. Mm-hmm. And those different explanations predict slightly different behavior in the how the brightness of the supernova changes at the very beginning of the explosion. And since we are staring at all these galaxies, we see it as soon as it starts to go off, or as soon as the light hits us. But we get yeah. to see the early explosion. Generally, when people observe supernova from the ground, you do supernova searches. And so you look back at your galaxies and monitor them every several days and look for large changes in brightness so that you can pick it up. But that means you don't see the explosion right as it starts. We get to see the explosions right as they start. Is that helping better understand like like the, the formations of the galaxies or, or just stars? Uh, or, or So, so what this will do is this will help us disentangle why the supernova happen. The supernova, we may not realize it, are just important to life as we know it. I mean, all the heavy elements, you know, the, the, the gold in your wedding ring or in your ears, those came from stellar explosions like supernova. And so elements and chemicals that we take for granted like the are, atoms from, that are, <laughs> are from stellar explosions that happened a long, long time ago. Every atom heavier than nitrogen was made in a supernova, including all the precious metal in your iPhone or Android device. And then the other really cool thing about supernova is because we understand, while we don't understand exactly how the white dwarf accretes enough material, gets enough material that it breaks this 1.4 times the weight of the sun's limit that triggers the explosion. Once the explosion happens, we understand that pretty darn well. And so we can use supernova as what we call a standard candle, where we know how bright it should be. And so if we measure how bright it looks to us, that actually tells us how far away it is. Uh And measuring distances in space is hard. And so we kind of have this whole ladder where like we measure distances nearby with parallax and then we measure distances further out by looking at Cepheid stars. But supernova are so bright that they let us measure the distances way, way far out there. this is not like in our galaxy. This is not in the Milky Way. These are other galaxies, huge supernova. Yes, very far away. And then that becomes, I mean, talk a little bit about the standard candle thing. That's just measuring everything in its vicinity. You can understand. No, no, it tells you how far away that galaxy is, how far away the galaxy that that supernova went off is. And that helps us map the 3D. uh, That just helps us map (laughs) all the distances and try to get a 3D image of our universe. And people use that to help measure the expansion rate of the universe, which then folds into does the universe keep expanding forever or does it collapse back in on itself? That's why these standard candles are so important to help us understand, quite honestly, the future of our universe. I'm just curious about, like, what does that show up like? I mean, you, you talked about seeing exoplanets. You have, like, it's like the pixel with like a bunch of light in the pixel and then like the clusters are kind of like, harder to disentangle. Is it just a super bright pixel that's like... Basically, I mean, so we look at galaxies. We're looking at 10,000 galaxies right now. So you have an image of a galaxy every 30 minutes, and then all of a sudden you'll see this blip appear. It will slowly brighten for about two weeks until it reaches its maximum brightness, you know, billions of degrees temperature. Uh, and then it will slowly tail off. So you see this bright spot suddenly appear in a, in a galaxy. And what's really cool, so right now we are, like I said, observing over 9,000 galaxies. We've been at it since early December. When we observe with K2, because we have to balance against 
the sun, we can kind of either look away from the earth or towards the earth. And we usually look away from the earth. Yeah. But this time around, we're looking towards the Earth. And on one hand, it causes a problem because that means the Earth goes across our field of view and it's a, it's a bright, bright thing that, <laughs> you know, gets in the way of things we want to observe. But with the geometry we're currently in, looking towards the Earth means that things we're looking at with the spacecraft are also observable from Earth at night. And so there are telescopes all over the world right now that are monitoring the same galaxies we're looking at as soon as they see evidence of a supernova and they don't see it right away but you know they'll see it you know a couple days after the explosion starts the, an alert goes out and then there are telescopes across the planet that are then doing follow up so they can kind of get an idea of what the chemistry is of the supernova and so when our data comes to the ground there are teams basically waiting to combine our data of this high precision early time changes in the brightness with the data they've taken on the ground of the chemistry mm -hmm. of the supernova to really inform the theories. And so, for instance, we know there's approximately 20 supernova mm -hmm. that we have data on right now. And uh, Gert has a favorite. There was a really nice one a, <laughs> a few weeks ago. It, it happened to be on, on Super Bowl Sunday. So informally, we called it the Super Bowl Sunday Supernovae. Nice. Uh, so, But you know, astronomers actually like to give really dull names to things. So the, <laughs> the official name is SN2018OH. Oh, you can do better than that. Well, it went off in a galaxy <laughs> called UGC4780. How about that? Nice. Uh, <laughs> and so the, the, the names are, are a bit dull, but the Actually, this galaxy is so nearby that it means that we get one of the best observed supernova ever recorded by astronomers. Uh, so this, this particular galaxy is just 160 million light years away. Now, okay, that, that's kind of far yeah. away. You know, it takes 160 million years for the light to travel. But if you know that like the edge of the observable universe is 50 billion light years away. Oh, yeah. Relatively speaking, it's next door. It's, it's less than a percent from the edge yeah. we can see. So it's sort of like being in San Francisco and just taking a, a ride to the airport. If, yeah. you th if you think of the size of the, of the universe as like the size of the planet, right. it's the airport from downtown. Now, all that data is still stored on the data recorder on the spacecraft. Okay. And we have to wait until the spacecraft finishes this campaign, as we call it. That's what we call the, the period where we look at one specific field. The spacecraft is going to turn its high-gain antenna, its big antenna dish, to Earth, uh, actually this upcoming Sunday at the time of recording, to point its antenna at the Deep Space Network, which is this uh, big set of the biggest radio antennas that NASA has to talk with faraway spacecraft. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get the data on Earth really soon, and we can't wait to actually see what happened. We know there was a supernova. We got a few images from Earth and spectra, so we know something about the chemistry. But now Kepler's really going to show us what happened in the first minutes and first hours of this event. And so maybe we talk a little bit about that of the the kind of like that life cycle of these campaigns. It's like it's a certain amount of time where it's getting the observations, but then it's got to skedaddle and move into a different place so you can take down the data. Then does it immediately go and look for more things? Or how do these campaigns overlap? And how does that work? So, so the campaigns don't overlap at all. Okay. And actually, we plan out, oh, God, like a year in advance what part of the sky we're going to be looking at. And then astronomers from all over the world propose which pixels we should download. We have a huge field of view, and we don't have enough room in our solid state recorder or enough bandwidth with the Deep Space Network to store data oh, wow. on all the stars that are in our field of view. So astronomers say, 
they propose which to observe. And you know, we tend to observe something on the order of 20 to 30,000 targets in any given campaign. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all of that prep work goes on in kind of like the year prior to the campaign. And then we take those target lists that are the top reviewed. We have other scientists take a look at the arguments that people propose and say, yay, we think these are the best ones. We make a target list. We have folks here who uh, run the pipeline to create the target list. There are folks at Ball who then turn those into spacecraft commands. Okay. Those are then uploaded to the spacecraft during one of these periods when the spacecraft is turned so that the high gain antenna is pointed at Earth. We upload those commands. The spacecraft then points to the part of the sky we want to observe, and it stays there for 70 to 85 days, depending on the length of the campaign. It kind of phones home twice a week. It just kind of says, we're still here. (laughs) We're still here. Nice. We're still here. And the spacecraft is further away from us right now than the Earth is from the sun. Oh, wow. Okay. 94 million miles. It's in an Earth-trailing orbit. Mm -hmm. And so when we're using the we're still here uh, communications, it's it's, it's like 20 bits per second. Oh, wow. It's super slow. Um, very little data can get through. And we're using 34-meter, 70-meter radio dishes, depending on which contact we have. So that goes on for, like I said, about 80 days. And at the end of the 80 days, we stop taking science. We reorient the spacecraft so that our high-gain antenna is pointed towards the Earth. We schedule a whole bunch of DSN time. The DSN is really fascinating, too, mm-hmm. that NASA has three DSN stations around the globe. And DSN stands for? Deep Space Network. Okay, awesome oriented around the globe and the idea is so that basically there's no matter which part of the sky you're looking at you can see one of the dsn stations it's in spain australia and then one in uh, california so they're basically at thirds around the globe (laughs) okay and so in these campaign breaks we get like 70 hours of dsn time we downloaded the data we just took we upload the next target list and then we reorient the spacecraft to the next part of the sky, and we start the whole process over again. So I, I think for a lot of people, Cassini is probably fresh on their brain. Mm-hmm. You know, it ended in this like you know <laughs> trail of glory as it burns up into the atmosphere. So obviously, the, these big space telescopes they they launch, and then they're inevitably are going to have an end of life part. Kepler was designed to do one thing very very well, and it did that very very well. But it is so good at what it does that it has become useful for so many things. I mean, it's so good at finding exoplanets, supernova, understanding, I mean, it might help us understand the fate of our universe, depending on what we learn from the supernova campaign. Dwarf planets, we haven't even talked about all the things that Kepler has taught us about stars and the interior mm-hmm. of stars. That's a whole other half hour. But Kepler is so good at what it does, and uh, NASA so values what we get out of Kepler that we have the privilege of having the opportunity to run this spacecraft for as long as it can go. Yeah. And we know it's going to stop at some point in the not-too-distant future. It only has so much fuel on board. But we're going to keep eking all the science out of it as long as we can. And so for folks who may not be familiar, what is that going to look like? We don't know. We, have no, we just literally don't know. Every system on board the spacecraft is beyond its designed lifetime. 
Okay. That's okay. People think of like a computer. It's got like it's, it's time as long. And then at a certain point, you have to re- replace yeah, you, it. You know how you buy something and it's got a year warranty, and then on <laughs> yes. day three sixty seven, it stops working. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. not our. That's not our spacecraft. Everything <laughs> is well past its warranty and is working. But we know something's going to break, and we also know if nothing breaks, we're going to run out of fuel. We don't know exactly when, but we know we're going to run out of fuel. Yeah. And so we've put a few steps on board where we're doing some ex- a little bit of extra monitoring at the twenty bits per second. On on those couple yeah. phone homes to kind of give us an idea, are things behaving like we expect or not? So far, they are behaving like we expect, but we're watching it, and when it starts acting up, we'll deal with that. And so it's one of those things where it's like, since everything is past its expected lifespan, I mean, you know at some point in time, you are going to run out of yep. fuel, or something's going to go yep. haywire that, that, you know, hopefully you can fix, but maybe not, Yep. and like, and that's not a surprise. This is purely expected. It's a thing that we it's know expected. is going to happen. We just don't know when. Okay. And until we know when, you're going to get as much out of it as you possibly can. Absolutely. And we know it's going to be soonish. We're not going to be here a year from now having the same conversation. Yeah. And it's fascinating. And it's obviously a testament to the scientists and the engineers that, you know, that put the thing together and that are eking this data mm-hmm. out of it. But it's always like as much of an engineering marvel as it is, it's like you always want to keep the focus on like why? Because we've learned so much and so much above and beyond what was even expected at the time of launch. Oh, absolutely. And it's trite. You know, people talk about, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Mm hmm. It takes a small town to, <laughs> to design, run, and understand what you can get out of a successful science mission. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, people have worked on this mission for, you know, we've been in space since 2009. People worked on it for, you know, years and years before that. Engineers, scientists, accountants, citizen scientists. We have so much data that there's a huge citizen science program where Garrett was involved in a really cool discovery that was found by... A mechanic in Australia? A car mechanic found the planet oh, system awesome. in the Kepler data just, just last year. Yeah, Because there's so much data, and in some way, the number of discoveries, the number of planets we find are limited by the person power, by the number of astronomers that have time to write up the papers and do all the analysis work. Uh, to the extent that we frequently now have just people that are not professional astronomers but are good with data or just want to volunteer their time uh, to go and find planets in, in our data. Because, you know, with, with K2 now, we have observed more than 300,000 stars. So try to go through each of them by eye. That's a lot of work. And, and, and it's important noting from what you guys had even said before, even long after the fuel runs out or it can no longer phone home and say, I'm here, like, there's still going to be papers written about the data that has been collected. And that's... Oh, oh, oh absolutely. And... You know, there's no reason I think it's going to stop. And if you look at the primary Kepler data, we took data on that one field for four years. People are still writing papers about that data four and a half years later. More Kepler papers were written last year than the year before. Oh, wow. And more were written the year before that than the year before that. And so there's so much science to be had. People are going to continue to mine this data at least for the next decade. And then when NASA's next new flagship telescope gets launched, James Webb, it is going to spend some of its time on actually studying some of these Kepler discoveries. So in some way, the legacy of Kepler will continuously live on as we get better telescopes and better instruments to uh, put our, our, our Earth into context. Yeah, because I'm sure that will help decide where that telescope looks. But then also when it gets data, it can compare the data to other stuff and then the land-based telescopes. And, you know, yeah, NASA is on this, on this mission to answer the question, are we alone? 
And we don't know the answer to that question right now, but uh, I think we're going to continue to see exciting new missions that are going to try to answer that question. Uh, because it's something that I think fascinates me a lot and fascinates a lot of people. Uh, because it's kind of fun to sort of know the context around you. It's like when you travel. It's mm -hmm. so much fun to travel and discover that, you know, maybe cars drive on the left side of the road <laughs> or maybe coffee comes in really small cups. And that helps you understand what's different in some cultures, but also what we all have in common as, as a human species. And I think for me, that's why Kepler is such an exciting mission. It's, it really sort of helps us understand humanity and actually connects us in some way. Yeah, because I mean, even think of like the core parts of NASA, it's not just about like exploration and human exploration. It's about revealing the unknown. It is understanding our universe. And it's like, and you can't do that without this. Without and ultimately, projects. it's always about us. It's always about understanding the universe because we are part of it. It's our universe. So for folks who are listening, if you have any questions for Jesse and Geert, um, we are at NASA Ames. It's also at Kepler as well. Uh, so if you have any questions, feel free to just go ahead and ping us on social media. We typically use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Thank you so much for coming over. This has been super fun. Uh, you know, we love to talk about what the science and about the mission and just try to keep us away. Nice. <laughs> well, thank you again to our returning Jeopardy champions. I think you're the first ones to come together for, for take two, so. But I'm sure you'll be back for more. Mm -hmm.